As you are seated, please take your copy of scripture or your bulletin. The sermon text this morning is from 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verses 6 to 22 in the Pew Bible. It's page 357. 1 Chronicles 29, 6 to 22. Then the leaders of fathers' houses made their freewill offerings, as did also the leaders of the tribes, the commanders of thousands and of hundreds, and the officers over the king's work. They gave for the service of the house of God 5,000 talents and 10,000 derricks of gold, 10,000 talents of silver, 18,000 talents of bronze, and 100,000 talents of iron. And whoever had precious stones gave them to the treasury of the house of the Lord in the care of Jehiel the Gershonite. Then the people rejoiced because they had given willingly, for with a whole heart they had offered freely to the Lord. David the king also rejoiced greatly. Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. But who am I, and what is my people, that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you, and of your own have we given you. For we are strangers before you, and sojourners, as all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow, and there is no abiding. O Lord our God, All this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand and is all your own. I know, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. In the uprightness of my heart, I have freely offered all these things. And now I have seen your people who are present here offering freely and joyously to you. O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, Keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people and direct their hearts toward you. Grant to Solomon, my son, a whole heart that he may keep your commandments, your testimonies, and your statutes, performing all, and that he may build the palace for which I have made provision. Then David said to all the assembly, Bless the Lord your God. And all the assembly blessed the Lord, the God of their fathers and bowed their heads, and paid homage to the Lord and to the king. And they offered sacrifices to the Lord, and on the next day offered burnt offerings to the Lord, one thousand bulls, one thousand rams, and one thousand lambs, with their drink offerings, and sacrifices in abundance for all Israel. And they ate and drank before the Lord on that day with great gladness. The grass withers and the flower fades.
Well, let's pray together. Father, we want to acknowledge right now that as we sit under that text together, that it is still true that yours is the greatness and that yours is the power and that yours is the glory, yours is the victory, and yours is the majesty. And we know it to be all the more true because there was one lamb who was offered, who was the culmination of every offering, one lamb who came, one lamb who was given, one lamb who offered himself for us. And his offering of himself means that nothing that we have is ours. From top to bottom and inside out, from the first moment of our conception and into eternity, we are yours. So now would you help me to preach as someone who is not his own, to people who are not their own. And will you help my friends, my brothers and sisters to hear you and to listen for you as those who recognize that whatever they have has come to them from your hand. And may we join together and worship the Lord Jesus Christ who is your greatest gift to us. We pray that on this day you would grant the gift of salvation to those who do not yet know you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're stepping out of uh, Matthew 11 just for one week, uh, Lord willing, um, because uh, after, the, after the service, we're going to gather as a congregation for our, our annual business meeting, and uh, we'll present the budget to you. Um, and it seemed appropriate to me as I was reflecting on that occasion, and I shared this with the elders, and they agreed. It seemed right uh, for us to pause in order to honor the Lord in uh, two directions at the same time. Uh, First, uh, to honor him by praise and thanks for his provision for us in this past year as a church, uh, his goodness and his provisions uh, for us uh, as individuals in this past year in 2012, and then also to honor him by faith as we look uh, to him again as a congregation and as individuals, as we lean into his heart again uh, for 2012. Uh, 13. Now, I know when you see our budget, you're going to think that you're looking at a spreadsheet. But what our budget is really is a song. Uh, it's a song that God has first taught to us and that we then sing back to Him. Uh, the math of our budget is really supposed to echo uh, the music of the gospel that God has sung over us in Jesus Christ the gospel that he's given for us, the gospel that he's given into us, and the gospel that he gives through us. Our giving is not about our giving, right? Our giving is about God's giving. Uh, Our giving and our budget are not about our sacrifices for God. They're about God's sacrifice for us, right? You know what the Apostle Paul said to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 8, it's one of my favorite gospel summary verses. For you know, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might be made rich. Friends, that's the story of what we're doing. And I don't want us to go into a budget meeting and just look at a spreadsheet. And I don't want us to just think about math. I want us to be singing. I want us to hear the music of... Uh, the gospel of God's grace. And so with 
2012 drawing to an end and 2013 right around the corner. I want to commend you as a congregation. I really do. Uh, for learning and loving the music of the gospel so well. Um, you know, we're in the fifth year, depending on how you count, we might be in the sixth year, of the Great Recession. And, uh, yeah, I know the government says it's over. Um, I'm a little skeptical about that, more than a little. Uh, but you know what, what's true and this is not uh, common among congregations. I know this because I talk to other pastors. What's true is that your giving has continued uninterrupted to be sacrificial, uh, to be plentiful, and to be joyful throughout that whole period. And I know, uh, I know that that is because of the work of God in you and of your willingness to respond to him, to trust him. So it gives me great joy. Uh, to think with you together about our budget. And, you know, I, in, in all the years that I've been at the church, which is now about 12, never once have I preached a, a sermon that was a, quote, stewardship sermon. It was never necessary. Now, that's an amazing thing. Not once. I've only spoken about money once directly from the pulpit, and that was in June of the first year I was here, and that was in 2001. That says nothing about me and a lot about you. And I suppose in a sense, every sermon is a stewardship sermon. Because stewardship is about not just money, but it's about our whole lives. That we have been bought with a price and we are not our own. Right? And so what the Christian life is over and over again is by God's mercy uh, presenting our whole selves to him as living sacrifices. So in a sense, every week we're thinking about that. So maybe that is stewardship. But this morning what I want to do is, uh, is approach this issue uh, not from one of your standard Advent texts, you know, First Chronicles 29. That's not one of the ones you normally go to. Uh, but I want us to reflect together uh, and both to frame our thinking and also to fuel our worship this morning uh, as we think about how our budget celebrates uh, two things. One, our vision of God, and secondly, our vision of God's work. Thinking about the budget and how the budget is our corporate expression, really a corporate celebration of two things, uh, our vision of God and our vision of God's work. So let's think first about celebrating our vision of God. Uh, like the giving of the people of Israel and King David uh, toward the temple in our passage, our budget really celebrates a vision of God. So think first about the people, the, the context. You may have picked it up already if you're not familiar uh, with where this is in the Bible. What's happening here is uh, that David's reign is uh, transitioning to Solomon now, and it will be Solomon's job to actually build the Lord's temple uh, but David has, uh, though he's not going to be the builder of the Lord's temple, he has not uh, neglected the duty to assemble gifts and offerings toward the building of the temple. And so he's doing that here in this passage and, uh, and also calling on the people to give uh, toward that same project that, uh, that uh, Solomon will supervise. And then notice there's just this incredible abundance that's given from the people. And then notice how... Uh, how verse 9 describes the outcome. Verse 9, 
Then the people rejoiced because they had given willingly. For with the whole heart, they had offered freely to the Lord. Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, they have just given very sacrificially. And verse 9 just emphasizes this twice. So, it's so important. Twice explains the reason for their joy. They had given willingly. They had given with a whole heart. They'd done it freely. In other words, their giving is a response to their seeing of God. Do you see that? Uh, they rejoiced not because they had given, but they rejoiced because they had wanted to give. You see the difference? And they wanted to give because God had done something in their lives. God had done something in their own hearts so that it wasn't a burden for them to give. They rejoiced not because they had given, but because they had wanted to give to the Lord. And he had given them that desire because of his work in their lives. In other words, their giving is a result of their seeing and feeling the worth of God. It's a singing of God's goodness. And the same thing shows up in David's prayer, which starts at verse 10 and then goes to verse 19. It's an amazing uh, prayer if you look at it. In fact, it, it really widens the wonder, if you will, in this passage because what it makes clear is that their joy in giving is the fruit of God's joy in first giving to them. Look at at how, uh, well, actually, you could restate it this way. In this is giving. If we're going to borrow from 1 John 4.10. In this is giving. Not that we have given to God, but that he has first given to us. That's what David is celebrating. He's got a vision of God, and his vision of God determines how he sees everything else. Do you notice this? Look at verses 11 through 13. I love verse 11. Verse 11 would be a great verse to memorize that would uh, prime the pump in your prayer life big time. Yours, O Lord. Look, look, at where David, look at what David does. He begins by taking his thoughts and lifting his heart up and away from himself. He goes as high as he can possibly go. He says, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty because everything that's in the heaven is yours, everything on the earth is yours, the kingdom is yours, you are exalted as head above all. He's up and away, as far away as he can possibly get from himself, because it's only in that perspective, it's only as he sees God for who he is that he can see anything else for what it truly is. Now that's an important biblical point. You won't understand anything until you stand under the truth about who God is. You won't understand the significance of anything in your life if you do not first stand under the truth of who God is and admire it. You won't be able to understand the wonder of your life. You won't be able to understand the wonder of the possibility of hope. You won't be able to appreciate the magnitude of what you've been entrusted with. 
David lifts his eyes and his heart up and away from himself as high as he can possibly go, begins with his vision of God because it's only then that his vision of anything else is going to be clear. And in this context, that has to do with the giving and the temple project. Because David sees a God when he lifts his eyes up to see who God is and to remind his heart who God is, he sees the same God that Paul sees at the end of Romans 11. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. He sees a God of absolute and total ownership. Do you see that? Everything is yours. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens is yours and all that is in the earth is yours. The kingdom, O Lord, not just the stuff, but the ruling. In other words, God's not an absentee owner. You own the heavens. You own the earth. You're ruling. That means everything on the earth and in the heavens is being guided and is under God's rule. He owns it all because he made it all. God sees, I mean, David sees a God of absolute and total ownership. And unless, or just in case you forgot, your whole life, my whole life, is somewhere in that, in those brackets, right? Your career is in those brackets. Your future is in those brackets, Your childhood was in those brackets. Your abilities are in those brackets. Your retirement is in those brackets. There is no part of anyone's life that is not inside those brackets. And that means that God owns it all. He sees a God of kingship. You see, that yours is the kingdom. Oh, Lord, verse 11b and 12b, and you are exalted as head above all, and you rule over all. And therefore, David, who sees this God of absolute and total ownership, absolute and total kingship, no exceptions, sees a God who's worthy of his total worship. Right, verse 13. Or really, you could, you could pick up verse 11. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. David's worshiping. For, and then verse 13, for now we thank you, our God, and we praise your glorious name. See, God, David's vision of God determines his vision of everything else, even all this abundance, right? Do you see all this abundance of wealth that was given? This is a great passage to understand, to develop a theology of wealth and prosperity, okay? Everything that is given to the Lord was first given by the Lord to the people. Look at verse verse 14. But who am I and what is my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you and of your own have we given you. And John's prayer reflected that too. Verse 16, O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand. You, you gave it to us and is all your own. You're the owner of it. It's amazing. Do you see that? So, so David lifts, when he lifts his eyes up as high as he can go and lifts his heart up as high as he can go away from himself to see God as he is, 
That vision of God determines how David views everything else, his own reign as king, his possessions, the work that has been assigned to him to build the temple, uh, what God is doing among God's people, everything that God's people does, that, that God's people do, everything that they provide. It is all, in the end, from God and through him and therefore appropriately to him. Now, friends, that's David's vision of God, and that's the people's vision of God. But, you know, it's, the same thing is true in our lives as people. Because just like in David's case and in Israel's case, our vision of God determines our vision of everything else as well. It makes a huge difference whether you think of God as the ower of all or the owner of all. So many people that I interact with not in our church, but so many people I interact with in life, treat God as if he were the ower of all. And if you think that God is the ower of all, that he owes you an easy life or he owes you, you know, nothing but uninterrupted joy and pleasure, then when you give, if that's the way you think about God, then when you give, your giving is going to be the story of your generosity. But if you believe, as God teaches us in his word, that God is the owner of all, then when you give, your giving is the story of his generosity. Right? And that means that you approach it with humility, you approach it with wonder, you approach it with thanksgiving, you approach it by faith because what you're doing, friends, when you give away money is you are going against the grain of everything the world tells you. And you're saying, I believe God more than I believe the culture. I believe God more than I believe the fears that rise in my own heart. Because I look at that cross and I see that because God was not willing to spare his own son for me, when I was a sinner and estranged from him, I can trust that he will also, having delivered up his son, provide everything I need. Friends, our budget is a reflection and our giving is the story of God's giving. You know, what it means to be a human being is to live at the bottom of this massive, unending, beautiful, abundant waterfall, okay, to just be there. God is always giving. What it means to be alive is to be under the giving of God, to be drenched in it. It's not a trickle, friends. It's a waterfall, and it is constantly pouring over us. It, not just Christians. It pours over non-Christians. Every day the sun rises. Every day there is oxygen in the right amounts. Every day your body is able to make red blood cells that take that oxygen that you breathed in that's gotten through your lung walls into the capillaries and carried the, the and gotten onto those red blood cells and caught a ride there and then carried to the rest of your body so your muscles can work. Every day that that happens, God is showing mercy to you. You're standing at the bottom of a waterfall and he's causing your heart to beat according to electricity that you don't control. And all the antibodies that your body develops so that you don't drop dead immediately. And when you cut yourself so that you don't bleed to death, there's this amazing clotting cascade that you should Google this afternoon and get down on your face and worship God for. And you think I'm kidding. Friends, we live 
at the bottom of this waterfall. And it never stops, and it keeps going, and it has nothing to do with whether we've been good or not. God doesn't say, I'll turn the spigot on when you're good. Turn it off when you're bad. You know why? Because that's not who God is. To be God means to have the spigot on all the time. And for us to think that in some way we could, we could control God or gain his favor or manipulate him to get on our side by what we give would be like me trying to re- standing at the bottom of Niagara Falls and holding up a spoon and, say, and getting, somehow getting, you know, if I wasn't crushed to death, somehow getting a little water on that spoon and then holding it back up and saying, thank you. Well, you know what? I mean, not only proportionately, but even in terms of title. That water was Niagara's to begin with. So anything we give God is already his. It's crazy. You know, we don't own anything. God owns everything. We don't own anything. I mean, our possession, it's like we don't own anything any more than we own the rain that falls down on us. If we own it, we own it like a reservoir owns the water that's in it. If we own it, we own it the way an irrigation canal owns the water that it carries or the way a pipe owns the water that travels through it or the way your circulatory system owns the blood that is carried through it. Friends, we don't own it. We're just God's chosen means for the distribution of what is already his to the places and for the purposes that he wants it to go. And so that means, friends, if you have a lot of money, that doesn't mean you're better than your neighbor. And if you don't have a lot of money, that doesn't mean you're worse than your neighbor. See how different the gospel is from the world? Your worth has nothing to do with your money. Praise God. That crazy John McAfee down in Central America, he's got more money than all of us put together. The guy's an absolute train wreck. You should pray for him. Maybe there's an objection at this point. Somebody would say, wait a second, Francis. What do you mean I don't own anything? I worked. I made the decisions. I, I endured delayed gratification. I saved. Yes, you did. You worked hard. Yes, I'm not denying that. I'm just saying, friend, praise God that you were able to work hard. Praise God that you were able to have the opportunities that you had. Praise God that you got your foot in the door in that particular employer. Praise God that he led you to make certain investment decisions. Praise God that he gave you the personality type and the intellect and all the abilities and the, and the sovereign weaving of relationships so, so that you would get a job or so that you'd have a foot in the door with a particular customer and decisive account. Praise God for that. That wasn't your own doing. It all belongs to God. Praise God that your investments were prospered. It all comes from Him because it's in His hand, right, to give honor and wealth. It's not in ours. Listen again to verse 12. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. Who decides which direction your portfolio goes? 
some CEO, some hedge fund manager? Please, in your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. See, friends, our budget sings the song not of our giving but of God's, not of our kingship and rulership and even stewardship, but of God's kingship. And so it's really to him that the greatness belongs. It's him to the, that the power belongs. It's him who deserves the glory and the victory and the majesty for everything that's in the heavens and on the earth is his. And by God's grace and in our hands, and by God's grace, we want the budget to sing that song. But our budget also celebrates something else, which is not just a vision of God, but a vision of God's work in our lives and for us, and God's goodness to us in Jesus Christ. Ultimately, why a Christian gives is because we have, not to get the goodness of God in Jesus Christ, but because we've already received it. It's a response, not a manipulation, okay? It's because we've tasted and seen the Lord's goodness to us in Jesus Christ that we give. And so our budget celebrates, and our giving celebrate God's work Uh, in three particular ways. God's work for us, God's work uh, in us, and God's work through us. Let me try to review these uh, very quickly. Uh, First, let's think about how our budget celebrates his work for us. Now you notice, you can see it in our passage, there's work before the people of Israel that God has appointed for them. And in this work, you notice God has provided for them. What David's celebrating is that God is providing through them, for the building of God's own temple, which is according to God's plan and not man's. And so you see a David uh, celebrating, ultimately, that the building of the temple is God's work, not Israel's. Everything that has been offered for the Lord's temple has come from the Lord himself. And notice how David recognizes, even in his prayer, you can see it's very Uh, shaped by history, the history of what God has done. Do you notice how in verse 10, he says, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father. That's almost a thousand years earlier he's thinking of God's covenant dealings with Jacob. And then later on in verse 18, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers. He goes all the way back. And so, friends, this is so important. The giving that David and the people of Israel are doing somewhere around 1,000 B.C., David is seeing in direct continuity with what God was doing in his sovereign grace in establishing his covenant with Abraham, which is about 2100 B.C., over 1,000 years before that. And David is seeing their temple project, Solomon's temple project, as this continuation of this work that God has been doing from the very beginning. God's had this eye, his eye fixed on, on this event. And, and, and David recognizes that this is not unique. God's provision and God's dealing with them is not unique to their generation. And so it sets it in this amazing, huge historical context. Well, friends, ten, about 10 centuries, and that was the first temple, Okay, That was the first temple where sacrifices would be offered to the Lord. And what's the significance of the temple? 
The significance of the temple is that where, that's where the holy God and sinful men meet. And the provisions of the sacrifices are the means by which uh, their fellowship can happen. See, it's different. It's an echo of Eden, but it's different from Eden. Because in the garden, right, Adam and Eve lived in fellowship that was unbroken by sin with God. And so God could walk in the garden and they would not be afraid. They could speak with God and they did, had nothing to be ashamed of. They didn't have to cover themselves. There was no need for atonement. But then sin came in, right? And so now we know from Romans 3 that the wages of sin is death. And there's no way, there's no way for fellowship between a, a holy God and a sinner apart from the shedding of blood. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. There has to be a death for sin. Right? That's what God said to Adam and Eve. In the day you eat of that tree, you shall what? You shall die. And so the temple is set up, and there are all these animal sacrifices, and there's a way now for God to enjoy fellowship with his people and for his people to enjoy fellowship with them. But you know what? It, wasn't, it's not, it was never intended to be the final destination. It was a picture. It was an aroma. This temple where God would cause his holy place to dwell in this one particular spot on Mount Zion and where sacrifices would be offered by men to God. Because the fellowship wasn't total. The fellowship wasn't free. The animal sacrifices never ended. And only, even with all that sacrifice, only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies where God's actual presence was. And even then, he could only go one day a year. Wasn't good enough for God. Was never intended to be good enough for God. Was intended instead to prepare us for something far greater, a far greater temple, a far greater sacrifice that God from the very beginning of history was pointing and aiming his heart toward and spending all of history teaching his covenant people and through them the world what the meaning of his son's ministry would be. Because 10 centuries after David's prayer, God sent a son. Not to be a temple builder, but to be the temple of God. To be the final temple. You see, that's what Jesus Christ is, my friends. He is the temple. And the word became flesh, right? You know this, John chapter 1. The word became flesh and dwelt, literally tented among us. And we beheld his glory. Jesus Christ, in flesh and bone, the Son of God, was and is the final temple that God was aiming history toward. And instead of merely providing the materials for the building of a physical temple, God brought the whole temple, the whole perfect temple down. He grew it grew him in that virgin's womb and through a life like yours and mine. And Jesus Christ is that final temple. And God made that temple. God is the one who gave that temple. It was God's greatest gift. And the amazing thing about this story is that this final temple is not just a place where sacrifice is offered by men to God. But that final temple itself is himself, is the sacrifice that was needed. 
the final sacrifice. Temple and sacrifice merged into one so that now full atonement could be made through Jesus Christ. And so now in him, in him, and only in him can fellowship with God be restored for men. It is only as we meet with God in Jesus Christ, my friends, that we can be restored to fellowship with God. And God did it all. I just think this is so amazing. The heart of God takes my breath away. You know, I was thinking this morning as I was getting ready for the sermon, and every once in a while, a sentence will pop into my head, and you, I spare you most of them. by the mercies of God and all kinds of reasons. But this morning, a sentence came into my mind, and I thought, when it, when it entered my mind, I thought, you know, I, I actually believe that. And it's this, that the gospel is too beautiful not to be true. There is something about, there are, some, there are many things about this story, about the gospel story, that when you immerse yourself in it, things happen. Do you notice there's nothing else? I was thinking as we were singing hymns this morning, these Christmas carols, do you notice? I, I challenge you, I challenge you to find any other event, any other thing in human history, anywhere in the world, that consistently produces the kind of joy that Christmas produces. Why is that? It's because it's true. It's because your hearts cry out and say, I know that I was made for God, and I know that I have broken what I can't repair, and I am drawn to the story of what God has done. Though I would not humble myself before him, he humbled himself as one of, one of me, one like me, to give himself in life and in death for me. That is amazing. God consecrated his son to be the final temple, to be his final temple. And he did that. He sent him into the world in incarnation. And he knew that as he consecrated him for that holy purpose, he knew that he would be desecrated on the cross by the sin of men. And Jesus knew that as well. In John 2, he says, destroy this temple. Do you remember this? Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. And John says, a couple verses later, he says, for he was talking about the temple of his body. God did that for us, to accomplish redemption for us. And it's because we have a vision of God's work for us to that great end where God through his son, provides a final sacrifice for men to God from his great love for us. It's because of that that we give. But, you know, friends, even if God had done that and done only that, you know, that would not benefit us because somehow there has to be a connection 
between that work of God for us in history and our own history. See, there has to be a connection. It's not enough. See, that's why not everybody is saved. It's not enough for God to break into the world. This is amazing. It is not enough for God to break into the world to send his son as the final temple and the final sacrifice who would offer himself, put put an end to all the sins of his people. It's not enough. You see, there has to be a connection between an individual sinner's life and that great work. And that great connection that happens, happens also by God's work. It doesn't happen by ours. God not only works for us, but he also works in us. He moves in our hearts in the same way that David prays. He says, Lord, do you see this in verse 18? He says, Lord, keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people and direct their hearts to you. See, David's theology He totally gets that the human heart is under the reign of God and the human heart goes in the direction that God wants it to go. Friends, you and I would not be Christians today. And if you've been a believer for anything longer than 12 seconds, you know when you think about your story that it was God who brought Christ to you before you ever brought yourself to Christ. Amen? And so you exult in his grace. God's worked for us. God works in us. Faith is a gift. It's not, this is not of yourselves. You're saved by grace through faith. And even that faith is a gift, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, so that no person could boast before God. God wants and gets and deserves 100% of the glory in the salvation of sinners. No one can stand before God and say, I believe that on the basis of my own intellect, my own strength, my own will, my own wise decisions. Why not? David tells us why. Because everything comes from you. And then God works through us. This is another amazing thing. Our budget celebrates that God works for us. He works in us, but also that he works through us. He actually entrusts mission to us. And he does not need us. And that is so important to get. God does not need us. And yet he works through us. Look at David. I mean, I love, David is so helpful. He's such a man's man. And he's such a poet. So men, don't you ever look down on poetry. Don't ever say to me, This is just an aside to men, okay? Don't ever say to me that you don't like poetry with that kind of way that you do that makes it sound kind of girlish. Because the man's man in the Bible, and no one gets close to David on that one, is the best poet in the Bible. Hello. Now, now, ladies, don't give your husbands poetry books for Christmas. (laughs) I am not going to be responsible for that. <laughs> but look at what David does in verse 14. But who am I and what is my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly? See, David's amazed that God would use him, a sinner. I mean, that's the David who sinned with Bathsheba, who's responsible for the murder of Uriah who is responsible for great sin, who's been restored by God's grace. And he says he knows himself to be a great sinner who's been redeemed by a God of great grace. And he says, you would use me? That is incredible. 
for your purposes, you who are high above all, who have a kingdom that is over all and to whom all glory and power belong, I would have the privilege of serving you by your design that you would take a piddly little person like me who's so inconsistent in the way that he lives and whose track record is nothing to shout home about. You would take me and make me a trophy of your grace. What a privilege. What a privilege that I would be able to give toward your work and participate in your work. And friends, you know, the privilege that we have is so much greater than what they had. I mean, what the privilege that they had is like a drop in an, in an ocean compared to what we have because we're part of, of a story that we see much cl- more clearly of God's glory filling, the knowledge of his glory filling the earth as the waters cover the sea. And we get to participate in that. One day, the whole earth is going to be turned in to the Holy of Holies. Revelation 21. The whole earth. And we're, we've been shown that by God's grace. Friends, the story that we're giving to, the story that we're serving, is the story. And God doesn't need us, but he gives us this incredible privilege of participating in it. I cannot think of anything more dignifying than that. If you see me this week and there's foam coming out of my mouth, it is not because I have rabies. It is because the hobbit is coming to town. <laughs> and, and, you know, I've been reading, uh, well, I finished. Last week, I, I started The Lord of the Rings uh, back in September, and I got, you know, last week I finished, I got the last hundred pages, and every, every page was like the trail of tears for me. I, started, I was like, I just, my heart was broken. I was like, oh, 98 to go, 97, oh. I didn't want it to come to an end. Yeah, Maria has to live with me. But there's a point, a very dark point in the story when Frodo and Sam, they're in the dark land of Mordor and uh, they're thinking about, they're comparing their situation to someone else's situation many centuries early in the history of Middle Earth. And this was a a character who had gone on a quest to get back a, a jewel that had been stolen by an evil character. And this jewel had light in it. And Sam, suddenly, as they're thinking about that story, and they're kind of comparing whose situation was worse, his or ours, Sam suddenly realizes, he says, wait a second, Mr. Frodo, that, that file that you got, that P-H-I-A-L file that you got from Galadriel that had the light in it, the light in that file that's in your pocket is some of the same light that was in that original jewel. And see, what Sam realizes, he says all of a sudden, he says, wait a second. That means that we are in the same story as that original jewel. That means that we are part of the same great tale that is the spinal cord for everything that's happening in Middle Earth. And, that, and Frodo says, yes, that means that the great tale never ends. Friends, you realize when I read that, I just wept. I wept because I realized that what Tolkien was saying was that that is what the gospel of God's kingdom is. We are in the same story 
as the Apostle Paul. We are in the same story in our, in our church here in the land that the 12 disciples were in. We're in the same story as King David. We're in the same story as Moses and Israel. The same story as Jacob and Abraham and Noah and Adam and Eve because the greatest tale is still being told by God as he builds his kingdom to fill the earth with the knowledge of his glory. Friends, that's worth singing about. That means that our lives are important and what we do matters. So let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks. And we're awed that you would give us this privilege. We thank you as we look back. We rejoice as we look forward. And we want to consecrate ourselves to you again through that final temple of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.